eyes at what I sense in the atmosphere of Manchester just in the last little over 14 years since the first time I came. And I'm saying this to your credit and to your encouragement. Your prayers are working. There is already a difference in the atmosphere. There's a shift in the spirit realm of this region. What you are doing is working. I mean it. Your prayers, your gathering like this, in little gatherings and in large gatherings, it's moving things in the spirit realm. And if you could really see what's happening, I think you would even do it more. You know? So be encouraged. Be encouraged. God is moving. Just say out loud, say it's working. And I get to be a part of it. Say it. I get to be a part of it. Yes, yes. Well, I want to talk to you tonight about my friend. I was sitting there thinking a while ago of an old song years ago. I heard it when I was a child. I don't have a soundtrack for it. I'm not even sure if I've got the voice for it tonight. A little on jet lag. But I heard this, and I loved it as a child. It was an old song that said, I have found a friend in Jesus. He's everything to me. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. He's the lily of the valley. In him alone I see. All I need to cleanse and make me fully whole. And in sorrow, he's my comfort. In trouble, he's my stay. He tells me every care on him to roll. He's the lily of my valley, the bright and morning star. And he's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. Come on, don't you love your friend tonight? Give him a praise if you love him. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we love you. It's the greatest desire of my heart to be the friend of God. And that's what I want to talk to you about. I want to encourage you in your role, in your purpose that God has put on your life. The privilege, the opportunity, the invitation that it is from God. And uh, so a lot of these thoughts, to be honest with you, some of these thoughts are old and some of them are fresh and brand new. So much so that I'm still baking them and I had to have to follow a few of my notes because I'm still processing some of this in the spirit. But I had an encounter. I've served the Lord all of my life since I was a little girl, far back as I can remember. But in the year from 2000, really 11 and 12, up until into 2016, I had a few years there, mostly about two to three years. It was the most intense spiritual battle of my life. Some of you have heard me talk about that season. Some of you haven't. But during that time, it so changed me. And I learned so many things about God, about 
intercession, about our role as intercessors, about the nearness of God, about the clarity of his voice. I will never be the same again. That storm resulted in my being an eyewitness to the greatest miracle I have ever seen. And I am still learning and receiving revelation today from that experience. I will probably talk about this experience until the day I go to heaven, and I'll probably talk to you about it in heaven. Because I would think if you saw Martha, the sister of Lazarus, and she were asked to speak tonight, she would probably talk to you about the day her brother walked out of a tomb. (laughs) Things like that mark you. You don't ever forget those encounters with God. And I am eyewitness to what, in my opinion, was pretty much equivalent to Lazarus coming out of the tomb. It was a miracle. Just to put it in a very, very small nutshell, because it's not what I'm speaking on exactly, but it was a result of my daughter. I have two daughters. My oldest daughter's name is Lauren. She's married to this handsome young man on the front named Samuel. (laughs) And uh, they've given me four wonderful grandchildren. And my youngest daughter's name is Lindsay. And she's married to who was the pastor of Ramp Church, Casey Doss, the director of the Ramp School of Ministry. And thankfully, they've given me three beautiful grandchildren. You have to mention the grandkids. Amen, grandparents. Yes. (laughs) Even though Lindsay has been raised in the church, they were very involved in the ramp from the DNA of the ramp uh, overseeing. Lindsay, not only did did they pass to the ramp church, but Lindsay oversaw the performing arts department at the school of ministry that we have. But it was a, a direct targeted assault attack on my daughter. I was saying this today, and it's true. If you're a parent, you know this. We love our kids more than we love ourselves. And it was a very strategic attack because the enemy knew there would be nothing closer to my heart than to target my daughter. So after a slow little continual drip of deception that was working underneath the surface, unbeknownst to me, the enemy pulled my daughter out into a bondage that caused her to leave her husband, the ministry, her family, moved to a different city, and changed to a different person. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that, loved someone deeply who changed to someone you've never known. But it was, for me, the deepest crisis of my life. And here was the encounter, and this is one of the most pivotal things that brought about a change in my life, but also set me on a journey that I'm actually still on and actually coming out of what I'm speaking on tonight. And that was this. When my daughter was in that place, I had people that were coming to me, well-meaning people, telling me, now, Karen, you're going to have to accept this. She's an adult. She's going to make her own decisions. You can't control her life. You're going to have to learn to accept this and move on with your life. And I, know that I knew that they meant well, but in my heart, it caused me to say, now, now just wait a second here. I mean, is this... Is that true? I mean, really? Is that, is that where this whole thing boils down to? That, that here we are serving God all of our lives, 
declaring the power of his word, the power of his name, that God can do anything. And yet we are just, we have to succumb to the attack of the enemy and just allow the enemy to come in our house, steal what means more to us than anything in the world, walk out of there. And I just have to learn to accept that and somehow move on with my life. Really? I mean, are we just at the, 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 the mercies of our enemy? I mean, for real? So I had a decision to make. I was either going to accept what was happening and somehow go on, or I was going to have to do this, get a word from God, determine what God had to say about that thing, and make up my mind, I'm going to stay in this place until that thing looks like that word. It changed me. Make a long story short, after two years of intercession, I saw God do what only God could do. When my daughter, after it got worse to worse to worse to worse, receive a word from God, it get worse. Receive a word from God, it get worse. But it's, when, it were, when it looked like it was in the absolute end of all things, the worst place it could be in, my daughter suddenly came home to God, to her husband, to her children, to her family, to her ministry. They are fully restored in their marriage and now pastoring a church in Knoxville, Tennessee. Now, do you know why I love to tell you that? It's because there's some of you in this room tonight believing for sons and daughters to return to God. There's some of you believing for husbands and wives to have an awakening. I just want to stand here and tell you God answers prayer and you cannot stop praying. I just want to be the one to encourage you to say you can't give up. Now, there was something else that came out of that season for me. That brought a revelation that I'm still not over. And that is the privilege of who God has called us to be. The position that he has given us. The authority that he has given us as intercessors. It amazes me. That he lets us be a part of his big plan in heaven. I found that just the privilege of not only being called sons and daughters of God, but being able to on the earth co-labor with him in his will to bring his will from heaven to earth as intercessors just began to blow my mind. I remember as when I, were, I was praying with Lindsay, it for Lindsay. It wasn't just a matter of me just saying pretty little prayers, but I began to receive the revelation of the word that tells us he has made us to sit with Christ in heavenly places. Suddenly my prayer time began to be different than just me sitting down and just praying these little whiny prayers to realizing, whoa, just a second, the, the privilege 
to be able to sit with Christ from heaven in a heavenly place. Whenever I would go to pray, I would sometimes set my chairs around in my meal house where I like to pray. Sometimes I would sit there by myself with God and, and, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the angels. Sometimes I'd bring in my friend, my intercessor to agree with me. And we would sit there and in my mind I realized, whoa, I'm not just sitting here praying. I am seated in the council room of heaven. I'm not just sitting here on earth as a little girl that's just praying somewhere. I am seated in a heavenly place with Christ, with Jesus in this, in this place far up above all principalities and power because that's where Jesus is. And I am sitting here communing with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, determining his will about matters on the earth. And from this heavenly place that I'm sitting in, I am decreeing out of my mouth God's will to the earth on the matter. Whoa, it just began to blow my mind. The privilege he's given us in prayer. So tonight when we were singing, I began to meditate about that again. We were, when we were singing the songs about uh, set all the captives free. Um, what, what, what are the words to that, Becky? Set all the captives free. Open the prison doors, that's it. Those are not just pretty little songs to a cute little tune and a nice beat. When you realize who you are and the position you hold in Christ and you begin to mix faith with those words as a room full of intercessors like we are tonight and you begin to take that song and you decree it out of your mouth as a declaration of the will of God, open up the prison doors, set all the captives free. It suddenly becomes a declaration of the will of God from heaven to the earth. And then in a room like this tonight, things begin to move and shift in the region just because there's a room full of people decreeing the will of God on the earth. So we don't ever waste time. Don't ever waste time just singing pretty songs. Make them decrees of the will of God. Make them declarations of his purpose. Do you get that? Don't waste a prayer. Don't waste a song. His plan to include us in his big plan for the earth is so amazing. I had a conversation last year with a young man that said, a, he made a statement that just grabbed my attention. I, I couldn't quit thinking about it after he said it. And it sort of revealed to me the mindset of a lot of a, a lot of how many people think about God. And it was just this. He, was, he had a big decision to make. And he makes this comment. He says, now this guy loves God very deeply. But he was trying to make this decision, and he just kind of spurts this out of his mouth. He says, well, if it's God's will to happen, it's going to happen, and nothing I can do or not do is going to change it. And when he said that, I just, I couldn't even hardly respond. If it's God's will for it to happen, it's going to happen, and nothing I can do on the earth or not do is going to change it. And I began to ponder that, and I began to sit there. I couldn't hardly think of anything else he said after that. I just caught in the thought, really? If it's God's will for something to happen, it's going to happen, and nothing we do will change that. It made me think, if God is who many people think he is, then why pray? 
right? Since God is sovereign, omniscient, and omnipotent, and he's going to do what he wants to do anyway, why should we bother to pray? If he already knows what we need before we ever ask, then why ask? Why does Jesus say in James 4, 2, you have not? Why? Do you ever think about these things? If it's God's will to open the door in your life for something, and this is going to be my door tonight. This is the best door we could come up with quick. It's a wonderful door. So we're going to call this door tonight right now the will of God. This door is the will of God. If it's God's will to open the door, why doesn't he just open the door? Why does he wait until we knock to open it? Why doesn't he just open it by himself? God knows the door is closed. He knows that I need it opened. He knows. God knows that I need this door open. But evidently, his just knowing it is not enough. Think about this with me. Why is it? I mean, please, God can open this door. He wouldn't even have to turn the doorknob. He could just, and the door open. He knows I need the door open. I'm standing here looking. But why is it that the opening of this door is governed by my knocking, which is my prayer, right? If you knock, he will, he didn't just say he would just open it. It's if we ask, we, if we seek, we, if we knock, why? These questions began to stir in me during my journey of intercession, and they led me to a comment that I still am pondering, and it was this. John Wesley made the comment. He said, God does nothing in the earth except in response to prayer. God does nothing in the earth except in response to prayer. Now, I'll be honest with you. The first time I heard that statement, I really wasn't even sure what I thought about it. I wasn't even sure I agreed with it. In fact, when I first heard the statement, God does nothing in the earth except in response to prayer. When I first read that, I was thinking, I don't know about, I mean, why? whoa, whoa. God does nothing in the earth except in response. What? Then I began to think, what if that's true? Then I remembered and I, and, and, and I realized why I think it was bothering me. I don't think I liked the responsibility it put on me. Because it's so much easier to blame God for unanswered prayer than to think that we really have that much responsibility for the will of God being manifested on the earth, right? I mean, when you think about it, it's not like he doesn't know what to do. For instance, when you think about the greatness of God and you think about, y'all follow me here, I'm going on a journey, but just follow with me, we're going to go somewhere. If you think about the greatness of God, the God of the universe, 
The God that hung the stars into space and and knows each star by name and all of the hundreds of billions of galaxies that are out there with hundreds of billions of stars and they're all just spinning in space and he's keeping it all together and the word says with, with the span of his hand, he set the heavens. I mean, he's brilliant. So you look at this God that created this vast universe and keeps it all together by the power of his word. And then you look at the woes of our world. And you have to think to yourself, it's not like the God who created all of that doesn't know what to do with all the issues of our cities, of our nations, of our lives. It's not like he's sitting there perplexed, right? And then we look at the clarity of his will concerning the earth. It's not like we don't know what he wants on the earth. The God that made all of this, the God that made the earth, the God that sees the problems that are in the earth, the God that sees the issues that are in the heart of Manchester, the sin that's abounding in England and Europe and the United States, the God that sees all of these things. It's not like we don't know what he wants to do about it because he made it clear. He says in his will, in his word, he's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. But are people perishing? Are they? Yes. He says in his word that he is his greatest desire is that we would prosper and be in health even as our soul prospers. He said, that's my will. He says, it's not my will that anybody would perish, but people are perishing. And he says, it is my will that you would prosper and have everything that you need and walk in the fullness of health. But are people sick and in lack? Yes. So do you ever think to yourself, you know, What's, what's the issue here? It's, it's almost like the greatest question of humanity. I had a precious Jewish man the other day who was a doctor, and he looked at me and he said, if God is good, like you say he is good, then why do such bad things happen to good people? Don't you ever get that question from people all the time? Yeah. When people look at the world, they think, come on, God, fix it. You know what to do. If you don't like it, you're God, and you can do something about it. But my question to you tonight here at Prayer Storm, to encourage you in your purpose and what God has called you to be, and then to encourage you that what you're doing is working, is to ask you this. Could it be that God's will is not being done in the earth because there's no intercessors to contend for it? Because in Matthew 16 and 19, he says this. Now, wait a second. Before I even say this, let's go back. I want you to look at the world and the condition of our world, the darkness, the lost, the needy. As you're looking at that, I want you to hear these words from Jesus. I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Oh, Part of that is so glorious, you can hardly stand it. Part of that is so frightening, it's hard to even grasp it. Part of us don't even want that responsibility. It's like, again, Lord, is is that, could that be true? That our role in this, is this significant and this important? 
I love something Bill Johnson says as it pertains to this concept. As it pertains to the thought, now bear with me, the thought that God has created all of us for fellowship with him, for relationship with him, but also for co-laboring with him on the earth to get his will done on earth as it is in heaven. Bill Johnson says this, and I just, I wrote it down as a quote because I loved it. He said, absolute surrender to the will of God is the only way for a believer to live. He said, yet something strange happens as that person enters intimacy with a friendship with God. God becomes interested in our desires and ultimately he wants our minds renewed so that our will can be done. That is so unreal to me. Do you know what he's saying? He is saying whenever we look at the needs of our earth, we realize that God's plan, his big picture plan was, yes, there are needs on that planet. But God has already done what he's going to do. He came, he sent Jesus to pay the price to give us back the authority of this place. And now then he wants to co-labor with you and me on the earth to accomplish his will. Period. And Bill Johnson is saying, there's no other way to live except an absolute surrender to God's will. Then he says, but when you live that way and you find yourself in intimacy with God as a friend of God, something wonderful begins to happen. When your will is so surrendered to his will that all that you want is his will and you become his friend on the earth, you're collaborating with God, his will from heaven on the earth, and you're working together, it says something wonderful happens. God becomes interested in your desires why? Because he can trust your desires because they're already surrendered to God. And then that says, if, it's, if you're working in such union with the Father, what does that mean? It's saying your desires can be trusted to the point that God wants to see your will be done. He wants to see your desires fulfilled. I just loved that when I read it because I thought, yes, God. That means you want to co-labor with us on the earth. That means you are interested in our thoughts, in our dreams, in our desires, to the point that, let's go back, whenever I am thinking of things that I would love to see God do, even in the ramp ministry in Hamilton, you know what I've been doing lately? I see myself in the council room of heaven again. Not only just praying for issues like my daughter, but I see myself sitting in the council room with, of, with my father because I am his friend. And sitting there as his friend, I am surrendered to his will and what he wants. And because of that, I believe I have access. This is the desire of my heart. I have access to share with him my desires as though we're dreaming together. Oh, so I tell God things like, oh, Father, I just thought of the most awesome idea. Camp ramp. What do you think, God? I mean, Father, think, just think, I can see cabins, I can see a tabernacle, I can see a 24-hour house of prayer, and you know what he does? Karen, I love that idea. That's a wonderful idea. Let's do it. He loves for you when you become his friend to co-labor with him and his desires on the earth that he becomes interested in your beauty salon. He becomes interested in your dreams. He hears James's ideas and James sits down with him in the council room of heaven and James is going, God, I've got this fabulous idea. I'm thinking about an awakening tour. Like we could go all over Europe and the father's going, James, that is fabulous. Let's do it. 
the privilege he's given us blows my mind to co-labor with God in his will on the earth. Part of me asked God, why would you do that? Why would you let us have such a place with you of co-laboring in your will? And part of me wants to answer the question of why with, I don't know. But then I think about what the world would look like if the Lord had not had that kind of a relational plan in the earth to collaborate with us. Had God forced his will on the earth, had God forced his will on the earth, then there would have been no choice on the earth. And if there were no choice, there would be no love. And the ultimate plan of God always, from the beginning of all things, was this. He wanted to love and be loved. He wanted to love and be loved. And had God forced his will upon us, we would just be like a bunch of robots walking around down here, forced to do his will. But because we choose to do his will, he finds people who love him that he can trust because we love him in friendship with him and we co-labor with him and his desires on the earth to get his will done on this planet and in our cities. The thing is, though, is he's restricted this kind of prayer and personal access to personal friends. You don't just go bossing God around. He is not your sugar daddy or Santa Claus. He is God. That's a big deal. Yes, that's a big deal. When you realize who he is and who you are. But at the same time, he gives us access to the friendship with God. Do you just, does that just baffle you? It baffles me. John 15, 16 through 13, Jesus said, he says, I no longer called you servants. I am calling you friends. He says, because the master gives basically, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, the inside information to his friends. Bob Sorge says something incredible, and I read it again today, and I loved it. Bob Sorge compared friends and servants, friends of God and servants of God, and I love this. Because the truth is, there's a lot of probably people that are believers in God, people that are saying, I believe in God. Okay, that's one level. Then you've got people that are like servants of God. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And then you've got the friends of God, which are not quite as many, except for this room's full of them. Listen to what Bob says. Bob says, a servant is like an employee. A friend is brought into management and made co-owner. He said, a servant can be deployed anywhere. Many, many, many minimal tasks any minimal task that needs to be done. But a friend is allowed to work in areas most significant to the master. In prayer, a servant desires to move the hand of God, but a friend knows how to move the heart of God. A servant prays like this, Oh, help me, God. Help me get this job done, Lord. Bless my labors, God. But a friend says, Lord, what are you doing? what are you thinking about? A servant wants the Lord to hear him. A friend wants to hear from the Lord. A servant is praying for the blessing he desires. A friend seeks to know the will of the Father 
so his will can come through him to the earth. A servant measures things by results and numbers. A friend evaluates things according to whether or not it pleased the master. The issue for a servant is faithfulness. The issue for a friend is love. A servant is told what to do without necessarily understanding why. But a servant is confided in. Which takes me. When I read that, I thought, then God, I have to know who your friends are. Because if we can be a friend... I'm going to be a friend. And who did God lead me to? One of my favorite people. A true friend. There's two people in the Bible specifically that God mentions as his friends. Who was the first one? Do you know? Yes. Abraham. I love this interaction. It's one of my favorite interactions in the entire Bible. Listen to this. So God sees a need on the earth. Now watch this. Sodom and Gomorrah has sinned. Just gross sin before God. God hears the cry of their sin. And rather than just coming down himself and just whopping them off instantly, because they've sown sin, they're going to reap destruction. What does he do first? He looks for his intercessor. He looks for a friend. He looks for someone he can co-labor with before he does it. And verse 17, I love this. God says, should I hide my plan from Abraham? He says, for Abraham will certainly become a great nation. He goes on. So the Bible says, so the Lord comes down with two angels. And he says to Abraham, I've heard a great cry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. I'm going to go down to see if their, their actions are as wicked as I've heard. And if not, I want to know. So Abraham and the Lord begin to walk off by themselves and talk. This conversation is amazing. You've got to get who's talking here. Abraham is talking to the creator of the universe. I just want you to, I want you to see here. This story is here to give us a picture of what God desires in the earth. I want you to get that. First of all, even before we the conversation, I want you to get what God does. When God sees a need, he looks for a man. That's my whole point of what I'm trying to tell you to do. God does nothing in the earth except in response to prayer. God sees a need in the earth. What does he do? The Bible says his eyes start roaming to and fro, looking for someone he can get his will through. So here he sees this need in Sodom and Gomorrah. So he says, they're going to be destroyed because of their sin. But should I hide my plan from Abraham? So here they go start talking. So Abraham, the Lord says to Abraham, I've heard their, their cry of sin. I'm going to go down. I'm going to see if it's as wicked as I've heard. I want to know. Abraham's first statement to the Lord is this. Would you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Would you still sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing. Destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why, you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. And surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of the earth do what is right? Does it just blow your mind that he just said to God, to God, surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of the earth do what is right? And the Lord replies. He didn't say, don't you ever speak to me like that again. 
No, because they're friends. So what the Lord says, if I find 50 righteous people, I'll spare the city for 50. Whatever Abraham was saying was what he was going to do. Unbelievable. This is unbelievable. So Abraham hears that. He goes on. Well, he says, since I've begun, Abraham, since I've begun, let me speak further to my Lord, even though that I'm just dust and ashes. He said, suppose there's only 45 people rather than 50. Would you destroy this city for, for, for this lack of five? And the Lord says, I'll not destroy it for 45 righteous people there. Abraham says, suppose there's only 40. The Lord says, I'll not destroy it for the sake of 40. And then Abraham says, please don't be angry, my Lord. He says, let me speak. Suppose there's only 30. He says, I'll not destroy it for 30. Abraham says, since I've dared to speak to the Lord, let me continue. Suppose there's only 20. I'll not destroy it for the sake of 20. Abraham says, please, Lord, don't be angry with me, but let me just speak one more time. Suppose there's only 10. And the Lord says, I'll not destroy it for 10. I just have to wonder what would have happened. Because Abraham thought, surely there's more than just the 10. I mean, surely there's at least 10. Abraham didn't know there wasn't 10. What would have happened had the intercessors said, would you spare this city for one? In my personal opinion, I think the Bible would have probably been written differently and he would have spared the city for one. Because you know why? Intercessors change history. Yes, they do. Intercessors change history. Intercessors change the mind of God. It's mind boggling. I know people have an issue with that. People say, well, nobody can change the mind of God. Have you read the Bible? Have you read the Bible? It's mind-boggling. It's the whole purpose of intercession. The law of God is in effect. They have sown sin. They're going to reap destruction. But the truth is, he's not really wanting to destroy them. Because, I don't have time to read it to you. Go read Moses for yourself. One of the places in Moses when God is so frustrated with the children of Israel. God is so frustrated. In fact, the first thing God says to, to Moses, God is so mad. He's so angry with, with Israel. The first thing he says to Moses is, Moses, leave me alone. I love that. In other words, God's like, Moses, I already know what's going to happen if you start talking to me. Just don't even talk to me. Just leave me alone because I'm going to destroy them all and spare you and raise up a nation out of you. But Moses was a good enough friend that he knew God so well. He just stepped right on in anyway. And he begins to intercede for Israel. And he steps between Israel and God. And he begins to say, but God, what would your enemy say about you? Lord, if you do that, what would they say? They would say that you brought us out here to destroy us, God. And you know what the next verse is? And so God changed his mind. Read it for yourself. It's in Exodus 32, 7 through 14. If you don't believe it, it's what the Bible says. It's the place of intercession. That's just amazing to me. That he invites us into that place of relationship. Don't you even wonder, when I, when I begin to study and think about this with Abraham and Moses, even in my own journey, I begin to think, God, if we can be friends of yours like that, Lord, I want to be your friend too. What was it that Moses and Abraham found in you? What was it that they knew? What? Because there was a wonderful scripture I found in Psalms that to me answered, answered my question about why they had access to a place like that in God. And it's a little scripture in Psalms that says the children of Israel knew his acts, but Moses knew his ways. Come on, because friends are people who are going to church once a week and hearing about God occasionally is not enough for friends. Come on. No, no, no. 
people that are just satisfied with, like the children of Israel, Moses, you go on up the mountain and come back and tell us what God says. No, no, no. Friends are people like Moses and Joshua who can't be satisfied with hearing what somebody else tells me about God. I got to hear him for myself. I got to climb the mountain for myself. What did Abraham and Moses know that no one else knew, that not even the children of Israel knew? They knew his ways. Do you know what that means? It means that Moses and Abraham tapped into the heart of God with a level of intimacy and through prayer and spending time with God and a passionate hunger that drove them that caused Abraham and Moses to find a place in God. They tapped into his character. They tapped into his ways so deep that they discovered something other people had not seen. They found that there was a well between sin and judgment. They found this well, and it was an unlimited place of mercy. And Abraham and Moses discovered something glorious, that mercy triumphs over judgment. They found out that if they would tap into the heart of God, they would find this glorious treasure of his mercy and as intercessors they could appeal to his mercy and see cities changed and nations changed and families changed and mountains moved and impossible things made possible because they found a place in the heart and the character of God it's amazing to me oh I don't even have time to tell you but I wish I could but I can't of people like me, his, his other friends in the Bible, they're all through the Bible. People like his mother, who wasn't just his mother, she was a friend. You could always tell his friends because his friends just don't give up. They know him so well. Oh, his friends know him so well. And I don't mean this disrespectful in any way, because there's a fear of God that you understand and you know. And again, you don't boss God around. But friends know him so intimately, they know when they can just push a little further. They know when they can just push, just sort of push the line just a touch. Oh, I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about they know his heart. That's why at the wedding, his mother looks at him and says, they don't have any wine. They've run out of wine. And her son says, uh, hey, yeah, it's not, not, nothing, none of our business to even be involved with that, mother. And then he says, it's not my time. You know, normally you should have just said, okay, sorry, guys. I thought I could do something, but he said, it's not time. Sorry, I hate it. Oh, no, no, no. He said, it's, it's not time yet. But she knew him. She just turned around and said, whatever he says to you, do it. He just went... Bring me the water pots. <laughs> Bring me the water pots. Come on. Don't even, t- don't, don't make, don't, come on. I just, can I just mention the little, the little Canaanite woman that was in the house with him? Come on. I, I just got a feeling somehow she wasn't really a stranger to him because she knew how to press the lines just to touch. When she came to Jesus, the little woman, and says, Lord, would you do, would you please help me with my daughter? She's vexed with a demon. She needs deliverance. And the Bible says, first of all, Jesus ignored her. Most people went in there. I prayed. I asked once. didn't even get an answer. You know? Most people have quit. They don't even know they've quit. They've just developed a theology that justifies their quitting. You know? I prayed. Didn't hear nothing. 
Didn't have any answer. I'll just go to church and just wait for Jesus to come. Accept things as they are in my life. Just accept it as it is. No. Oh, no, not her. He ignores her, and she keeps on. Lord, please help me with my daughter. Listen, this little woman became my best friend when my daughter was gone. Please help me with my daughter. She's got to have deliverance. And the Bible says the next thing that happens is his disciples offend her. And then in front of her, they look at Jesus and say, make her leave. She's getting on our nerves. Now, for sure, most of us would have left the building at that time because I've come to your church. I've heard you say that you can do anything. I came for help, and now your ministers have offended me directly. All of your preachers, all of your team, all of your ministry staff, did you hear what they said about me? I am so out of here. Gone. Oh, no, not her. Oh, no, not her. She knew him just a little too well. She ignored what the disciples were saying about her because her need, when you get desperate enough for God, you get desperate enough for a miracle, you won't care what anybody around has. They will say you have crazy and lost your mind. It won't even move one thing in you when you set your heart that you have to have a miracle that only that man right there can give you. There's no other answer except I have to reach his heart. So she just kept pressing it. See what he does? He says, woman, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, it's not your turn yet. It's not time for you yet. Wouldn't she have left? He said, it's not time. Oh, no. Oh, no. When, when, when the devil messes with somebody's kid for a mother, mothers lose their mind when something happens to one of their kids. So she just kept pressing it. Then Jesus turns around to her, and I don't even understand this one myself. I will ask him about it when I get to heaven because it's pretty shocking. Because he looks at her and he says, he says, it's not right for me to take the bread and give it to the dogs. Now, for sure, you've ignored me. Your ministry staff has insulted me. You've told me it's not time, and now you've called me a dog. If you ever think I'm going to ever come back to your ministry again and have anything to do with this place and this church, I am so gone. Right? Oh, no, no, no. She's too good a friend. She says, but Lord, even the little dogs can get the crumbs from your table. If I can't have the whole loaf, just a crumb would be enough for her. Come on. And Jesus said, oh, woman, she knew what was going to get his heart. Oh, woman, great is your faith. And the Bible says her daughter was healed from that moment. Come on, she got what she wanted because she was friend enough to press into his heart. I'll close with this. Friendship with God, co-laboring with God to have access to his will from heaven to pull it to the earth. What am I telling you tonight? I'm telling you, I'm going to talk to you just really quick about something that happened in Luke 18. Luke 11, I'm sorry. But before I do, I want to tell you this. What am I telling you tonight? I am telling you, I am telling you that if you don't pray, it matters. Now, I know that prayer will move things in the heavens. That's why you know that. But the truth is, when you receive an answer to prayer, it's actually because he's already foreordained it in his will anyway. You're just releasing what he's already foreordained. You're bringing it to the earth. That's what happens when you pray. But when you don't pray, it affects things in the spirit realm. 
It can delay the timing of God in the earth. And the truth is, you're the one that suffers for it. Because you're praying to a God who's not caught in time, honey, you are. God was okay to let the children of Israel wander around for 40 years with his promise till all of them died and he could raise up a generation to believe his word. He was okay with that. He's not in time. You're in time. I'm in time. And when we don't pray, we're the ones that lose. I'm telling you. The way he has called us to intercede as friends on the earth baffles me. When you need something from God, don't just pray one time or three times. How often do you pray? Until. He's been gone for three years. It's okay. Until. Come on. You've been contending for your husband for 17 years, okay, until my, Jew, my friend Judy Jacobs had to have a miracle before her daughter. She fasted and prayed so long. Her husband looked at her. He was worried about her health. And he said, honey, how long are you going to do this? She said, until. Then she said, what's the devil going to do with until? You know what the devil did with until? He let go of her daughter who was in the hospital and had to have a miracle. She came home completely delivered and set free because of until faith. you got to have until faith. That's why Jesus said, you ask and you receive. Seek, you find, knock, and it will be opened. And he said that in, reg- in relation to this word. Luke 11. This is unreal. Just listen. I'm closing with this. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to show you how to pray. I'm going to show you. Think about this, okay? Jesus, I'm going to show you how I want you to pray. He didn't say, pray just all collected and nice and pretty and together. To ask, formal and collected. Here's how he said, I want you to pray. This is the way he said it. He gave us an example. He said, now here's my example. Now, you can read it for yourself because of time. I don't think I'll read the scripture on it because I promise you I'm going to stay true to the scripture, all right? You can go read it tonight for yourself, Luke 18. 11, Luke 11. Luke 18 is good too, though. Luke 11. Luke, Luke 18 is the little widow. She's my best friend. Luke 11, he says, now here's how I want you to pray. He says, I'm going to tell you a story. Now, just bear with me and let me, let me take that story and modernize it to our day and stay true to its principles. With me? He says, there's two friends named Jim and Dave. Jim and Dave live in Dallas. Jim and Dave are such good friends that this particular night, Jim went to Dave's house with their whole family. Both families sat there together and had dinner. Wonderful dinner, close friends. Enjoyed their time, finished dinner. Jim goes home with his family to his house. Well, Jim also has another friend named Rick. Rick lives in St. Louis, Missouri. Well, Rick's friend in St. Louis, Jim's friend in St. Louis, Rick, Rick decides he's driving to Houston, Texas. But you got to go through Dallas to go to Houston. Rick's on his way to Houston, and he's about midnight, and he's tired, so he decides to stop off in Dallas at his friend Jim's house and just see if he could sleep there for the night because he's too tired to keep driving. 
So he stops. It's midnight. It's late. Jim's his family's already in bed, but Rick decides to go on. He knocks on the door, and and um, Jim goes to the door and answers it. Oh, Rick, how you doing? Come on in. You know, because in Bible times. We jump back to the Bible times when this story was set. The Jewish people were such hospitable people. When they had company, it didn't matter who came or what time it was. They went overboard to be great hostesses. So Jim is, Rick, come on in. How are you doing? And bring the family. Y'all just come right on in. Honey, y'all get up. You and the kids get on in here. Rick's come in to see us a little bit. They start to talk. And Jim says, Rick, you hungry? And Rick says, I'm starving, actually. He says, well, let me get you something to eat. So he goes back in the kitchen. Jim does. And he calls his wife in there and says, honey, he's hungry. We got to get him something to eat. And his wife says, Jim, you know we ain't got nothing to eat. That's why we ate at Dave's house tonight for dinner. We're out of everything. And so Jim says, well, we're going to have to do something he says, I tell you what, you entertain Rick in here. I'm going to run over to Dave's house down the street. I'm, I'm going to get some bread. I saw him tonight. He had three loaves of bread left over from dinner. I saw him put it in the pantry. I'll be right back. I'm going to get that bread, and I'll be back in a little while. So what Jim does is he goes right down the street over to Dave's house. Now, it is midnight. It was a little after midnight, actually. But, but this is what Jesus said is how I want you to pray. So he comes to, to Dave's house, and Jim's a little desperate. Dave. 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 Come on, Dave. Dave. Who is that at this time of night? Hey, Dave, listen, it's, it's, it's Jim. I know it's late, but listen, I, I got to have you get up for a minute and give me some help. I need, I'm needing to borrow some bread. Jim. 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 You sound funny, Jim. It's midnight. I know it. Come back in the morning. I know. I can't come back in the morning. i got to have the bread tonight. I don't need the bread in the morning. I'm needing it tonight. And, and Dave, I've got to have you get up right now quickly. i got company at the house, and I'm out of bread. I need you to give me some bread. Come on, Dave. Come on. Jim, I'm not Subways. I don't have any bread on me. <laughs> Dave, I know you got bread. I saw you put three loaves in that pantry tonight when we were over there for dinner. And I got to have you get your carcass up out of that bed and give me that bread. Come on. Dave? Jim, get off my property. Now, here's the deal. The truth is, what... Dave just told Jim, when he said, get off your property, my property, there's laws for that. It's called trespassing. No trespassing. And the truth is, Dave could call the police and have Jim removed from the property. But you know the truth is? Jim knows that Dave ain't going to do it because they're friends and they've got a long history. So he ain't worried a bit that, that Dave has just threatened him to get off his property. You know what Jim does? Hey, Dave. Dave. Come on. Come on. Dave, I got to have that bread. Come on, Dave. Come on. I need you to get up. Hurry. Jim, now you've woken up the kids. 
See, the thing is, too, <laughs> what Jim knows is what happens when you wake up the kids. Because you know what happens when you wake up the kids? The kids look at their daddy and say, Daddy, who's at the door? And daddy goes, it's Jim. And the kids say, well, what does he want? And their daddy says, he's wanting some bread. And the kids say, well, daddy, give him the bread. Give him the bread. And see, what happens is when you're needing something from God and you're not getting the answer that you're needing quick enough, what do you do? You go wake up some intercessors. You go wake up some friends of God, some of his kids. You go wake up some kids and get them praying with you. God, give Karen the bread. Give her the bread. So you know what Jim does? He just stays right there. Come on, Dave. Dave, I got to have that bread and I'm in a hurry. I got company waiting on me right now. And listen, come on. I ain't worried about it. You know what, Dave? It's fine with me. I am just sitting right here. I can just make myself comfortable. I'm just going to wait right here. I ain't leaving this door. I'm going to sit right here. I'm going to sit right here. Come on. All right. This is the price of peace, man. Come on. I need three loaves. Yep, right there. There we go. Come on, one more. All right, there we go. Because when you ask, you receive. When you seek, you find. When you knock, the door will be open. Come on. You ask, I need three loaves. Three loaves. I need salvation. I need healing. And I need deliverance. Come on. For my daughter, I stood at that door every day, every day, every day. I'm telling you, when my daughter was gone, I stood at the door of heaven just like Jesus said to do. Jesus said, Karen, this is the way I want you to pray. So you know what I did? Every day I stood before God. I would knock on heaven's door. I would say, God, it's Karen. God, you said pray like this, so I'm praying like this. I need three loaves for my daughter, God. I need salvation, healing, deliverance for Lindsay. God, give me the bread. God, give me the bread. Oh, Jesus, I got to tell you, one, one night at the ramp, I don't know my show, don't know my nahanahe. Oh, no, no, I'm high. I was standing at the ramp. I'd been praying like this for t- t- over two years. Oh, Jesus. And as I was standing there, and the situation had gotten so horrible with my daughter. And I was praying. I wasn't even thinking about Lindsay at that moment. I was in worship. And I was standing at the ramp, and I was just standing there like this, worshiping. I was with, surrounded with a thousand young people in that room, just lost with God. And I'm telling you what happened. All of a sudden, I went into a vision. And standing before me was a door. And I'm looking at this thinking, I see a door. Now, all of a sudden, now Lindsay is so gone. She's not with the Lord at this point. All of a sudden, I see this door and I see the door open. And when the door opened, I saw two hands reaching out and handed me three loaves of bread. And I was so shocked and stunned by what I saw that I literally, I'm standing here like this, and I literally went, I went, you're giving me the bread. You're giving me the bread. When I said that, the door opened wide. And when it opened wide, I stepped inside. And when I stepped inside the door, I walked into a warehouse, a warehouse that was so full of bread.
from the floor to a roof that you could not even see the top of. It was so unbelievable. Shelves and shelves and shelves. More more huge than anything I can describe in words. And I'm looking at shelves and shelves and shelves of bread. And I'm standing there in this warehouse looking at this bread. And I heard that voice. And he said to me, you just want three? I said, oh, no, God. I said, I don't just want three. Give me the whole warehouse, God. I need the warehouse for the youth of the UK. I need the whole warehouse for the young people of America, of the nations of the earth. I want all the bread, God. Come on, get up on your feet tonight. Thank you for tuning in to Pressed On Podcast. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode. For more information and teachings, go to www.prestorm.org.